This is the Bald Scientist Podcast, where we talk about science, from the factual to the fictional, and sometimes a bit of both, with the good doctor, One R. Pagan. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and make no mistake, if you are my listener, you are a beautiful person in my book. I am, of course, One, your host, and this is the latest episode of the Bald Scientist Podcast. Before anything else, Happy New Year, only two and a half months late. Thank you for your patience with me. It's been almost two months since my latest episode, but I am making it up to you with this episode. More on that in a second. But before going into today's episode, I have a few shout-outs and announcements to give you. If you know me, it is no secret that I'm a frequent customer of a certain coffee chain whose name rhymes with bucks. <laughs> and furthermore, you probably know that my favorite drink is a green concoction whose name rhymes with frappuccino. <laughs> anyway. In pre-pandemic times, I used to go there all the time to write. Actually, my first two and a half books were written there. Nowadays, of course, I use the drive-thru. But I just wanted to say hello to all my barista friends there, who are not just barista friends anymore, they're just friends, okay? And I want to give a shout out to all of them, but very especially to two of them, who I know are active listeners of my podcast, Carly and John. So, to Carly and John, hello! <laughs> By the way, I am in no way endorsing the, the establishment. It is a personal choice of mine, and I love going there, and I happen to like their drinks, right? And conversely, the company is not endorsing the Bold Scientist podcast. Although, if said company would like to sponsor my podcast, have your people call my people, and by my people I mean me, and we'll talk. <laughs> but I digress. I'd also like to give a special shout out to the members of the Pagan Lab, Jess, Dominique, Miguel, and Kimber. You see, the lab has been closed, our research lab has been closed for almost a year now. When the pandemic hit, the university gave us the option to keep it open with, of course, proper precautions and everything, but I decided against it because I, let's put it this way, the safety of my research students takes precedence over the publication of any paper. End of story. Since things are getting a little better and with the imminent vaccination coming in the horizon, uh, as it were, I hope that we can open it uh, real soon and then we can continue playing with worries. So, my young Jedi Masters, please receive a very special hello from Pops. Long story. In fact, that's a story better left for another day. <laughs> Finally, I wish to remind everyone that I'm planning to record a one, maybe more than one episodes on imposter syndrome 
which is a big uh, situation for many people, actually for all people, if we think about it. And I'm very excited to let you know that Harriet, a friend of mine from Twitter, is on board with the project and she kindly offered to collaborate with me. So, if you have any anything to say about it, any experience that you want to share about imposter syndrome, send me a DM, a direct message on Twitter, or uh, send me an email to orpagan at yahoo.com. Well, everyone, I will not keep you waiting any longer. And boy, do I have a special treat for you today. This is part one of an interview of the very first guest of the Bold Scientist podcast. My guest today is Mr. Peter Caldron. Peter is an international best-selling author who specializes in science fiction, but he's also written in other genres, as you will hear soon enough. More importantly, he's a great guy, a family man, and a great friend. Peter and I have been friends for almost 10 years now, and we met through our respective blogs. When I started writing my blog, Bold Scientist, I started looking for like-minded bloggers, and I found his excellent blog, Thinking Sci-Fi. I am a big fan of his stories. He's a great writer and a fellow nerd, a fellow science enthusiast. <laughs> and one of the best things about his science fiction writing is that he uses sound scientific principles in all his stories, and he'll tell you all about it soon enough. In this interview, we talk about a bunch of things. Biology, of course, astronomy, astrobiology, Leonardo da Vinci, an actress who may or may have not played Harley Quinn, <laughs> and uh, many, many other things. Oh, and before I forget, one of my tweets is Peter's second biggest fan. I'm the first, of course. <laughs> anyway, Peter's second biggest fan is Kate. So, hello, Kate. I can tell you for a fact that Peter and I had a lot of fun during this interview, and I hope all of you enjoy it as well. So, without any further ado, I give you Mr. Peter Cotron. How are you, Peter? I'm great. Thank you for having me on the program, Oneg. No, thank you. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, my listeners know, will know in, uh, in the introduction that I will record later on when I come down, because this is the very first time that I interview a guest. And I've been interviewed in other places, but I've never been on the other side of the proverbial fence. So I am a little nervous, but I'm having a lot of fun. I know it's going to be a really fun night. So uh, again, Peter, thank you so much. Or, or a fun morning from my perspective. That's right. That's right. I should mention that Peter is in Australia right now. Right now, Brisbane. Is that right? Yeah, that's yep. great. Uh, and I'm talking from snowy Pennsylvania right now. So I would like to begin by uh, introducing our our listeners because they're our listeners today. Of who is Peter Codron? Who who are you? Uh, you can t give me as many or as few details as you'd like. Sure. Well. I'm a hard science fiction writer, uh, and I've got 20-odd books uh, published on primarily on Amazon. Um, and al although it's considered hard science, I prefer to think of it as plausible science because science shouldn't be hard. You know, science 
is something that has enabled the world around us. It's made modern life possible. And a hard science fiction book is really a book that is just written so that it adheres to the plausible known laws of science as we understand them at the moment. Um, and uh, hopefully I make them easy to read. So, and that's hard science is as, as opposed to soft science would be more fantasy-like? Yeah, so you, rather than sort of um, distinct categories, there's, you know, things kind of blur in the literary world, but um, when it comes to science fiction, you know, you can have all extremes, you know, you, you can have your Jedi space wizards, for example, in Star Wars, which I love, for example, but, yep. you know, uh, calling on the force is definitely not something that you'd consider hard science. Um, whereas with um, hard science, you're very much looking to say, okay, how can I work within the known constraints of what we have to deal with uh, scientifically and build a story that's going to come across as uh, realistic and plausible? So one thing you see quite often in movies and, uh, and in books to some degree is instantaneous travel and instantaneous communication Absolutely. Um, you know someone gets on the, on star trek or star wars and they hop in a small little tie fighter and you know minutes later they're across the galaxy so in a, in a hard science fiction novel you would either have to present some plausible way with which that could be done or you'd have to say well actually you know it's going to take years to accomplish this and then the story revolves around the fact that it takes those years and so the hard science becomes almost the backdrop in the play. You know, if you think of actors on a stage, hard science fiction is the, the backdrop behind it. You know, the, the paintings, the murals and all this sort of stuff against which the action is going to unfold. Okay, so I can relate because, uh, well, first of all, my dear listeners, for the sake of full disclosure, I have to say that I'm a fan of Peter's writings. You should know that by now. So I'm a little biased, but it's really good. On the uh, matter of hard science fiction, sometimes I used to be uh, uh, to get a little impatient with certain astrophysicists who would uh, criticize any and every space movie, uh, <laughs> and, and 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 they will. I, I felt like they were spo spoiling the fun. Until one fine day, I saw a movie. Heavy, heavy on biology, and I almost had a stroke <laughs> because they, they, they kept doing this. They keep doing the same thing. So I, I, I understand. I understand. And in that tradition, for example, of hard science, we can talk about, for example, Isaac Asimov. People who actually knew what they were talking about, as you do, Peter. Because you, you, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, and, and Arthur C. Clarke's another one. And as a general rule uh, in hard science, the, the sort of unwritten rule, I guess, is uh, you can have one area in which you wiggle around, but everything else should sort of conform to the known laws. And so Isaac Asimov, for example, or Arthur C. Clarke will, will do that. Right. They'll, they'll, they'll build their stories around what was known at the time, and then they just might have a, a couple of small areas, but they're trying not to be um, loose with those particular constraints. And uh, one of the things I love about independently publishing is if somebody does pick up a blooper in one of my books, I can fix it in, within a day. So, you know, mm -hmm. at times I will get someone who's a specialist in the field and I'll come in and they'll say, oh, look, you know, um, uh, you know, the particular type of primate you described in this book isn't found in that area. I'm like, oops. 
<laughs> jump in, fix it up, and away we go. So I actually appreciate it. I don't, I don't mind it at all. The, the, and, and I don't look at it as criticism. I look at it as um, a form of compliment, you know, that they enjoyed the story enough and cared enough to reach out and say something. So, you, you know, you, you can sort of take it both ways. Exactly. And in that sense, you are at the same, at the same time, you're entertaining the reader, but you're communicating science, which is a very important thing nowadays. It, it is. And it's, it's one of the reasons I started writing science fiction. Um, uh, I, I came from a religious background, and so I was sort of a late bloomer when it came to science. And so sort of coming out of that um, background, my perspective was that uh, science really got a bum's rush. You know, it, you know, scientists were often the bad guys in movies that I loved, like Jurassic Park, for example, yeah. um, or, or books I liked, like, um, again, it's another Michael Crichton one, but um, Prey or State mm -hmm. of Fear. And, and I started to realize, you know, there's actually a real swing against science in society um, with global warming, for example, you know, um, and you start to realize, well, you know, this is, people are being unfairly tarnished here. People are being unfairly um, attacked and often with really terrible motivations. Like when it comes to climate change, you know, the, the motivation for attacking the science is down to one thing, money. Absolutely. I think it was um, Exxon had studies in the 1970s that they did internally that showed that climate change was going to cause global warming. And they modeled the effects of that and realized that it would cause um, sea rises, that it would cause storms to intensify. And because they were building projects that were you know, destined to last 30, 40, 50 years, they built it with that in mind. So in the 70s and 80s, they were planning for the level of climate change we have now while actively denying it. They were, okay. building, they were building the big retaining walls around their coastal refineries. They were strengthening the style of um, oil rigs that they were using and things like this because they understood the science, but it, there wasn't a uh, profit motive for them. And, and so then publicly, they attack science. And that's had a really negative effect on society to the point where you know, now we've got things like COVID and you know, people are saying, well, you know, uh, what about the side effects of the vaccine? And, you know, and, um, and I, I just look at what's happened to date. I think there's been 150 million people vaccinated and not one attributable death. Um, you know, if we had 150 million people uh, infected, at, in contrast, we would have three to four, maybe five million people that would have died. So a lot of our fears are irrational and they're um, whipped up by the frenzy, you know, whereas, you know, science is actually a really calming influence on society. Science is an enabling influence on society. I, I was um, looking at some uh, background research for a book I'm doing, and I was looking at the buildings in the Middle Ages and in the um, sort of Roman Greco times. And it struck me how small the floor plans were. And so just out of curiosity, I looked at it and I was like, you know, why are the rooms so tiny? <laughs> and it was because they didn't understand material science. They hadn't figured out the 
engineering behind it, the trusses that we have in our roofs that allow us mm -hmm. to have large um, rooms in our living room and things like this. And, and you just realize, you know, here are these everyday things in life, fridges, canned food, you know, iPhones, all of them uh, depend on science and they've come about through science. And yet too often science is the bad guy you know, it, it's the scapegoat for problems in society. It becomes the bad guy in science fiction books and movies. And so when I write science fiction, I try to make science the, the quiet hero. The, you know, uh, I always try to keep my story science positive and portray it in a positive light because I think a lot of damage has been done um, unnecessarily. And science has been tarred and feathered without reason. And I say that what you are doing is making a, a great service for uh, the education of people in the science, just by keeping the fear factor away from it, the misunderstanding factor, uh, and for moving science away from the villain's role to the, again, the quiet hero role. It's, uh, it's a great thing. Uh, I believe so. So was that your motivation for beginning to write, to, for becoming a writer? How did that happen? I've always loved writing, and yes, I, I just saw that far too often science was the bad guy, and it's inexplicable, really, when you stop and think about it. Everything in the modern world hinges on science. Yep. Uh, it, it's just crazy, and, and yet the mad scientist is one of the favorite tropes for a bad guy in, in villains, um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a case of saying, well, you know, here's an opportunity to do something I love, which is writing, and to be a force for good to try to help people to see science not as something unknown and unreachable, but something that's just a natural part of life. Uh, you know, uh, too often science is framed as just another alternate point of view, uh, but it's not. You know, um, if I want to know about the atomic number of palladium, I'm not going to consult an alchemist. <laughs> right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, if, if, a, if a comet is going to hit Saturn, we're not going to talk to an astrologer about what's happening. And we're going to go to an astronomer. You know, science is actually something that is incredibly well-defined and deserves our trust. You know, um, now there are times where scientists get it wrong, but the first people to point it out are other scientists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, we, are, we are notorious nitpickers. Uh, we, we love nitpicking the other, other scientist science. Uh, and that's the, the, the way it works. Uh, and it's the best way, uh, yes. in, in my opinion, in my opinion. Have you always uh, written science fiction? Of, have you written any other genres? Um, I have. I've been warned against it, and I've done it anyway. <laughs> um, because generally fans... Um, like an author because of a particular you know style that they bring and a particular type of story they have so i've currently got 17 stories in my first contact series which is all about you know uh, the science behind first contact but i've written uh books like mr fluffy bunny which is a, a sort of a teen book that i did for my daughter and it's it's a tribute to lewis satchar's holes which if you haven't read okay. it it's a brilliant book it also came out as a movie i had uh, Sigourney Weaver and John Voight and a whole bunch of great actors in a, a fantastic movie. And I just loved it so much. I, 
I, and, and I wanted to write something that didn't use science fiction as a crutch. So there's no science in it. You know, it's just a good old story. It's um, set in a, an orphanage in Mexico. And uh, it's about a, a preteen girl with a stuffed rabbit. And the stuffed rabbit saves the day. So it's <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that, that, that sounds awesome. So, so yeah, so I've, I've written a few sort of books like that on the fringes. I've done a Sherlock Holmes book called The, the Curious Case of the Hounds of Hell. Oh, based on Conan Doyle. Yes, yeah, yeah. So uh, when, when Sherlock Holmes came out of copyright, I thought, well, I, you know, and, and these are tribute pieces. I, I do a lot of um, tribute works where I'll write a story and it will be inspired by a story I've loved. Um, so I've always loved the Sherlock Holmes book. So I, you know, I had to do one of those. You know, I, I love Lewis Satch's Hole. So I, I wanted to do a tribute piece for that. I've done a lot of tribute pieces for different uh, science fiction authors as well. So my latest book, which comes out next month, is called Deja Vu. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a tribute to H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, but it does not have a time machine in it. And, <laughs> and so it's one of these things where you know, readers will know that. They'll read the book and they'll go, okay, I'm not seeing the tie-in with H.G. Wells and Time Machine. And then when they get to the end, they'll go, Oh, okay. I see it. There it is. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, but yeah. It, that's what inspired it. So, yeah, I, I, yeah. I get. Yeah, just to make our listeners a little jealous, I know a little bit about the plot already, and I'm not saying anything. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but but you're gonna like it. You're gonna you, you're gonna love it, actually. So, yeah. what 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 was your first novel? Oh, uh, well, my first novel was one that was never published, and I threw out. Uh, it was a story called uh, Dead Planet, and it was set on Mars. Um, and so I think I've revived a few of the concepts through different books over the years, but but it's a okay. book that, that I don't even have anymore. It's, oh, my God. Did your wife never <laughs> rescued it from the garbage like Stephen King's wife or something? No, no. Did, it, it was on a story, right? No, what was that? Uh, you know Carrie from Stephen King? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he uh, threw it in the garbage and his wife scooped it out of the garbage and started reading it. And she told him, listen, this is good. Keep working wow. on it. Yeah, and that was his, arguably one of his most famous novels. Yeah. So, yeah. so oh man. Well, unfortunately, yeah. this was on a laptop and the laptop is long gone. <laughs> I know, I know. But it's, it's from maybe, before maybe, the days maybe. of cloud storage. Yeah, but maybe you can reconstruct it someday. What can I tell you? I mean, anything can happen. Okay, I'm going to give you a fair warning about an unfair question. Sure. Okay. What is your favorite novel of yours so far? Oh, yeah, really hard. Um, it's like picking your favorite child. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I do tend to always be looking forward, like I'm always trying to make the next novel my best novel, and I try to grow from novel to novel. All of my writing is experimental in that I'm trying something new, um, I'm pushing myself in different ways. So my last novel, uh, Wherever Seeds May Fall, was set over a period of four months with four different protagonists. 
and the book is in okay. four parts. So, you know, part one is November, part two is December, part three is January, part four is February. Um, and so that was a real challenge for me because I had to be thinking about the perspectives of four different people and then how the story would progress over these four periods of time. So I thoroughly enjoyed that um, because of the challenge of it. Um, Deja Vu, which comes out next month, the challenge there is that it's claustrophobic. You've got the perspective okay. of one, one person and it's, it's like the camera is sitting over her shoulder and you're just you're seeing her thoughts and everything she's going through and the glimpses she gets into these future worlds and things like this so um yeah it's it, for me it's all about the challenge behind them um i do go back from time to time and uh revise books to you know okay. if, if I learn more and i want to update them but yeah as, as for picking a favorite I would think it's probably one of the more obscure ones that no one reads. If you don't want to pick one, that's fine too. But I guess now that we that we all want to know. So, um, how 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 about alien space tentacle porn? Come again? <laughs> it's clearly one you haven't read. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so alien space tentacle porn is a novel I wrote about five years ago. I okay. would love to see Ryan Reynolds in it as a movie. It, it, okay. It's a comedy. So it's the only ah. time I've written science fiction comedy. Um, no cephalopods were harmed in the creation of the story. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it's my take on a reboot of Men in Black, if you like. Okay. Uh, uh, and yeah, and, and it's comedy. It's only short. It's not very long, but... He would be great in it. I agree. <laughs> I can see it. When, when I wrote the story, um, My Sweet Satan, my youngest, yeah, daughter, yeah, my, my youngest daughter told me, that's a terrible title. No one will ever buy the book. <laughs> and I said, I bet you I can come up with a worse title than that. She said, what? And so off the top of my head, I said, Alien Space Tentacle Horn. And then she, <laughs> And then she said, there's no way you're writing a book called Alien Space Tentacle Porn. And I know you did for, for a fact. I know that you did. <laughs> and, and I said, okay, challenge accepted. Um, so it, it's a story about, um, like I said, it's, if you go into it thinking about things like Men in Black and sort of zany comedies, mm -hmm. um, you, you pretty quickly realize that it's off the wall humor um, and uh, it's a very different take on First Contact. Now, so. I, I'm amazed at, at your range because you, you can write the most serious, uh, you know, sober science fiction uh, novel, and you can use the same science in a comedy. Uh, that's no mean feat. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of fun. I, um, sci uh, writing is all about learning, and, okay. and I try to grow from one story to the next, and I'm, I'm constantly pushing myself to be better than the last novel and you know it's it really is an art form and anyone can write that that's an important thing to put out there so if anyone's listening and they're thinking about writing you know anyone can write and yet writing is an art it's like saying anyone can paint or anyone can run a hundred meters you know yes but very few people can do it like Usain Bolt and very few people can write like Absolutely. Stephen King. 
So it's very much an art form and it's about uh, sort of, you know, two aspiring writers and people that are, you know, wanting to write novels. It's something to do for the love of it, first mm -hmm. and foremost, because you will get criticism. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's something to do realizing that it is an art form, that it's something like painting or sculpting. You know, you, the only way you're going to get better at it is by really applying yourself, by learning, by acknowledging when uh, mistakes are made, by looking at your own work with a critical eye, um, by refining and, you know, and, and developing further. It's, uh, so it, it, it's, it's quite fascinating. And, and that's what I love about it. You know, I, if, if I look at, uh, so I've got three books coming out in the first six months of this year, Wherever Seeds May Fall, Deja Vu, and um, Jury Duty. All three of them have had more work put into them than any other book I've written. Okay. So, so Wherever Seeds May Fall probably had four to five times the amount of effort that was put into something like My Sweet Satan. You know, because I, I just really wanted to have something that was going to, um, you know, be a home run, really hit things. And, um, and, and the same with Deja Vu. Deja, Deja Vu is a story I started in 2015. Okay. So it's been five, six years in the making. Um, so it, it is an art form. It, when um, Leonardo da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa, the actual painting itself was finished in about three or four months. And then he had it sitting in the corner of his studio for years and he would work on other projects and he would walk past it and he'd look at it and he'd just go in and he'd add a slight glaze around her eyes or he'd, he'd just touch up under her cheek and then he'd leave it and walk off and he'd, and, and he'd work on other painting projects and he'd come back and he'd see it in perhaps a different light and he'd come in and he'd just, you know, add, a, add another layer on you know, uh, on her nose or, or, you know, her hair or something like this and, and just refining it. And so when it comes to me with stories, I'll have some stories that I produce in three or four months, and then I'll have some that take five years because they're, they're my Mona Lisa sitting in the background and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of walk away from them for a while and then I'll come back and, you know, add a few touches. And then finally I'll, um, when I'm when I'm satisfied and happy with it, I'll I'll put it out there. It's like planting a seed and taking care of the plant lovingly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a, a curiosity because one of the things that I like the most about your science fiction writing, it's the the detail, the the actual care that you have about getting the science right, and uh, and we're talking about from astronomy to biology. Okay. I don't know if you if you remember, but the first novel of yours that I read was Anomaly, and oh, yeah. uh, that that was what that's the novel that introduced me to you. And basically, my question is, uh, and again, don't uh, frame your answer because you know I'm I'm a biology guy. Okay, do <laughs> do, do you like more writing uh, like astronomical or or biological based science fiction uh, novels? Um, I think biology, and, and for a reason that might not be obvious to your listeners, there, there's a famous um, cartoon by, X, I think it's called XKCD, is the, Paul yeah. Randall is the cartoonist, and it's got, you know, it's all stick figures and stuff like this, and it's got a bunch of scientists talking to each other, and, a, 
astrobiologist is talking to a physicist and, and they're talking about the purity of sciences. And then there's one stick figure way out on the side and they go, hello, I'm a, I'm a maths. You know, I've got a <laughs> exactly. exactly. You know, saying, you know, saying maths is the most pure of all because it's what everything else depends on. And there's truth to that. But the other way to think of it is that biology is the culmination. You know, bi biology is maths and physics and chemistry um, applied to astonishingly remarkable and intricate systems. And so, you know, biology is, um, you know, it's, it's the science that is supported by all the others. You know, you, you look at astrophysics and people, are, you know, there are, there are um, uh, gas clouds in Sagittarius that, you know, are just full of amino acids, the same mm -hmm. acid you find in DNA. Yeah. Um, and so astrophysicists and astronomers are, are sort of piecing together the search for life, which is biology, you know, and the search for the origins of life and understanding that. Um, and um, biology fascinates me because it's, it's a Rube Goldberg machine based on physics and chemistry. And uh, for, for people that don't know what a Rube Goldberg machine is, if you've ever seen these um, short videos where a, a ball rolls down a plank and then hits a key on a piano and drops into a cup and the cup turns over and it pulls a string and, you know, a guitar falls on a tire and the, the tire rolls across the and hits something else. And, and biology is like that on steroids. Uh, you know, if you, I, I remember one point, uh, I'm not sure which book it comes out in, but I think there's like something like a hundred million blood cells die within us every second. Yep. And are replaced by, by you know, hundreds of millions more. And we just, we just live. We don't, we don't have to care about any of that stuff. It just happens all over. And so you've got this Rube Goldberg machine of physics and chemistry, um, you know, that is sustaining life. It, it is just remarkable. And um, it's one of the things that, you know, science has shed such light on. I was talking with some friends the other night and we we're talking about the invention of glass and just how pivotal that was mm -hmm. in science because, you know, it's inert, you can do experiments in it and, you know, um, but more than that, it allowed you to develop a lens and a lens could then be used to look out at, you know, Galileo looking up at oh, Jupiter and, and could also be used to look at the microscopic world. And so all of a sudden we realized that humans are stuck in the middle. We have this astonishingly vast universe on one side of us that is just has incalculable depth. And then on the other, we have this vast array of uh, interactions, you know, within a cell, you know, all the way right down to atoms and quarks. And here we are in the middle. <laughs> and yeah. for hundreds of thousands of years, we've been oblivious to both extremes, and yet they they drive our lives. It's uh, it's, it's quite remarkable. So I think I think I think biology is the uh, you know, is, is a fascinating frontier. And especially, is it abiogenesis? Is that how you pronounce it? The, the study yeah, of the yeah. But you're, you're asking me for advice on pronunciation, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. The, you know, uh, I, I just, I find it 
remarkable. Like um, there, there, I know there's been some um, remains found of um, uh, organic matter in uh, zirconia crystals from yep. the Pilbara region in Australia, where, where they can sort of see um, the telltale signs of some of the earliest life on Earth. And yeah, I, I just think it's an it's astonishing what science can um, reveal about us. Uh, uh, you'll have to help me with the pronunciation on this one as well. Is it the <laughs> phylogenetic tree of life? Oh, yeah, it's perfect. Okay, there you go. So uh, for, yeah. for your listeners, this is how uh, all the genetic material that's in every living thing is ultimately related and and can be traced back and into different groups and, and gives us an, an understanding of what our last common universal ancestor was and just... Yeah, it, it, I'm in awe of it. I, you know, uh, it's it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I take my hat off to biologists. I think. No, no, uh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, you're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> and, but but I feel the same awe, uh, and I and I feel that it, it it is a little bit more than a poignant awe because of all the things, all the living things that we will never get to see. Uh, you see what I'm trying to say? Because yeah. even though we, the fossil record is so rich, uh, I think the number, they, they think that about 99% of all species that have ever graced our planet are gone. Yeah. And, and, a, and a significant fraction never left any remains of their existence. Uh, and that's something that it's poignant, that gives me pause. And and yet, all the magnificence of life that you that you're talking about, I mean, it's more than enough to, to last a thousand lifetimes. Yeah, and and it and it never ceases to amaze. I read an article this week about a type of snail that's found in hydrothermal vents, and its uh, shell uses iron silicates, and it can withstand temperatures up to seven hundred and fifty degrees Fahrenheit. Get out! Not not calcium, but iron. Yeah, using iron iron sulfate rather than calcium in the um, in the shell. Oh my god! I didn't know that. <laughs> I'll send you the link after the call. Please do, please do. You, you, you see, I mean, it's a cliche from Jurassic Park, Park, but life <laughs> finds a way. Oh yes. my gosh! Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, and, it is astonishing. Um, I, I often think about how, like uh, one of the points that Charles Darwin made in On the Origin of Species, and he also brings it up in The Descent of Man, is that our designation of species is arbitrary. You know, it's for our convenience. Yep, so, absolutely. You know, so we define this species and that species, and we look at, you know, can something interbreed? No, okay, we're going to classify them into some species. But really, there's just one life form on Earth that has branched and evolved into all these, you know, as Darwin calls it, the, you know, these, uh, the, this beautiful variety. And, and that's, you know, the, the concept of DNA and RNA. You know, the, every living thing is just an expression of DNA and RNA in a different form. There's, there's just this one life form that has remarkable diversity. Uh, yeah, constant. literally, literally endless forms, most yes. beautiful. That's yeah, the phrase yeah. I was looking for. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that, that, yeah, but that's it. Uh, uh, and Darwin's insight uh, still 
still applies. And yeah. uh, one thing that that I'd like to think about is like all life on our planet, okay, is the same type of life, DNA based, carbon based, uh, that yeah. that uses ATP in their metabolism. It's like if I don't even know if we can use the term, but Lego blocks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We use the same set of Lego blocks to to build biological life in our planet. And the challenge is to find out whether there's another set of Lego blocks out there, fundamentally different from ours. And I know you share this sentiment. Yes, yes. When it, when it comes to life in outer space, um, I don't even think it's a question. Well, this marks the end of part one of my interview with international best-selling author Peter Codron. Part two will come by in about a week or so. In the meantime, please uh, shoot me an email to tell me how you like it, because I know you absolutely loved it. <laughs> anyway, please stay healthy and safe, and I will see you soon. This is again your host, One. Bidding you good night.